Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello, I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage on Economist Radio, our weekly show on technology and science. Coming up on today's show... Are electric planes on the horizon, maybe in hybrid form? And this is by two companies which are part of United Technologies. And what they're doing is producing what you might like to think about as a Toyota Prius of the air. And what would you do if you found a wallet laden with cash on the ground? We wanted to study whether people act more dishonestly when they have a higher financial incentive to do so. Now, much to our surprise, we find that people are more likely to return a lost wallet when it contains a higher rather than a lower amount of money. But first, how can the study of whales help cancer research? In 1977, epidemiologists found that large mammals are blessed with very low cancer rates, which surprise people. Now scientists are studying large mammals like whales and elephants to understand how they have developed cancer-resistant genes. This could be used to advance cancer treatment in humans. Caridwin Cornelius is writing about this for an upcoming edition of The Economist. Hello, Caridwin. Hello, thanks for having me. So whales are some of the largest mammals on the planet. What can we learn about cancer from studying them in particular? What scientists have discovered is that when whales became large about three to five million years ago, they developed lots of changes to their genes. So they have these cancer suppressor genes and they developed many, many advantageous changes that help them fight cancer. So they discovered that the evolution of gigantism in whales went together with cancer suppression. So scientists are investigating how they evolved this cancer resistance, what strategies their genes and proteins use and how that can be translated into treatments for humans. Okay, so the process that you're describing is comparative oncology. Is this really an effective way of studying cancers? So far, it looks extremely promising. So there's one scientist who is looking specifically at elephants and is developing treatments using an elephant protein called elephant P53. Humans have this as well, but elephant P53 appears to be much, much more effective at killing mutant cells. So he is developing a treatment in the lab that uses synthetic elephant P53 to combat mutated human cancer cells. And he has found that it induces, as he says, incredibly rapid and robust cell death. So this is really extraordinary. How would we be able to sort of increase our level, if you will, of P53 or at least exercise this gene more so that we can actually kill cancer cells in our own bodies? 
So this scientist, Dr. Josh Schiffman at the University of Utah, is using nanotechnology to accomplish this. And essentially what he's doing is he manufactures minuscule lipid spheres that are loaded with proteins, including elephant P53. And their drug is designed to deliver this elephant P53 directly to tumor cells in the human patient. And because it's nanotechnology, it's able to evade the immune system and it goes into the tumors, releases the uh, elephant P53 and kills the cells. So I presume this is still in the laboratory stage. Is it going to slip into medical practice anytime soon? It'll probably be a while before it's going into human treatments. So right now it is just in vitro and laboratories and human cell lines, not actual human patients at this point. So it'll be several years as you know, these things take time. Fair point. What other ways are we actually trying to learn from other animals in terms of combating cancer cells? Scientists are looking for the first time really at cancer rates across a large variety of species. So they're looking at approximately 13,000 different species. And they're looking at a database with 170,000 records of individual animals to try to figure out what species have really low cancer rates. And a lot of that hasn't been determined yet. They're also trying to induce cancer in some species where we've never detected cancer to see what happens. And then they're looking for patterns across these species. Are there certain traits that their genes have? Do they have duplications in those genes that allow their genes essentially to coordinate attack on cancer? Or are there certain amino acid differences in these genes that allow these genes to be much more effective at stopping cancer in its tracks than, say, human genes are at the same thing. So do we need to use animals that are similar to humans in order to actually combat cancer? Or can we learn from species that are dissimilar from us? Species are actually surprisingly similar in their genomes. So we are seeing the same kind of tumor suppressor genes in humans, in elephants, in whales, in dogs, all of these types of species. So not really, actually. We do not need to use very similar species because we have a lot in common. Now, just because we have the same genes doesn't mean those genes are exactly the same. You know, as I mentioned, there may be small differences in those genes that make them much more effective than others. But no, so they're looking, for example, at sponges um, to see you know, what secrets they might have because there are certain species of sponges in which cancer has never been detected. So it's very promising across the board. That's so interesting. Caridwen Cornelius, thank you very much. Thank you. You can read more on this story in this week's Economist. And if you like our journalism, take out a subscription. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or 12 pounds. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, 
Next up, when you think about air travel, there are some very familiar sounds you encounter. Friendly hellos from the European flight attendants and menacing scowls from the American ones. Overhead cabins locking, the sound of tray tables being put up in the full and upright position, and the sound of engines whirring to life. But could one of these sounds be about to disappear? Improvements in battery technology have led to the development of hybrid airliners, which use both jet engines and electric motors. So while we may be used to hybrid cars on our road, will we really see hybrid planes in the near future? Paul Markley is the Economist Innovation Editor, and he has flown into the studio. Hello, Paul. Hello, Ken. Paul, how do you see these hybrid aircraft engines working, and when will we see them in the sky? Well, the first prototypes are coming together now, and in the next few years we'll see some experimental versions of these airplanes getting airborne. What they're trying to deal with is the fact, although batteries are getting better, once you get above a handful of seats, the batteries are still too heavy. So if you want to fly 50 passengers or more, you've got to go the hybrid route. There's a number of ways of doing that, and one in particular is called Project 804. And this is by uh, two companies which are part of United Technologies. And what they're doing is producing what you might like to think about as a Toyota Prius of the air. And how does that work? What they're doing with their experimental aeroplane is they're using a turboprop. So that is a jet engine that drives a propeller. And they're swapping the turboprop on one wing with a downsized jet engine that will drive that propeller. So it's about half the size, half the power that would normally be there. And then they're having an electric motor connected to the gearbox in that turboprop, which will drive it as well. Now, the combination of the jet engine and the electric motor will allow that aeroplane full power for takeoff. But once you've taken off and you've settled down into the cruise, you throttle the engines back. So the jet engines aren't really used that much during the cruise. And when you come into the land, the windmilling of the propellers going round and round will turn the electric motor, which operates the other way around, which will top up the battery. So that means when you're on the ground, you're ready for another takeoff, or indeed if you have to do an emergency pull-up and go around, you've got enough juice in the tank to be able to do that. So it's a little bit like a self-charging hybrid. That's really incredible. I love the self-charging element of it. But I have a question. Why are we doing this? Why you're doing it is because that combination, reckons United Technologies, could save you 30% or so in fuel over a distance of about a one-hour flight in a 50- or 60-seat passenger turboprop airliner. That's quite significant, particularly as we've pushed the technology almost about as far as we could probably go in making conventional airliners more efficient. So there's got to be some step change now about how you do this. You're beginning to see in the next few years some experimental airplanes coming that will kind of shape the things that we'll be flying in the next 20 years. And, of course, one always has to ask safety concerns. Safety should be as safe, if not safer, than uh, conventional aircraft. Electric motors, you know, they're pretty reliable. Let's look even further out, though. When are we going to have electric planes? Fully electric planes. Fully electric planes, fully autonomous. Well, for small one, two, three-seater jobs, very soon. I mean, already there's a few flying around China and one or two experimentally. The question is whether they're fully autonomous. 
Paul, you talk a good game about hybrid airplanes. When are you going to fly? When will I get a chance to fly in a hybrid yeah. airplane? Well, it's going to be 2020, something like that. Well, first, I've got to build it. Second, I've got to, you know, will you insure me to go on an airplane that's got experimental written all down the side of it? Um, <laughs> I'm game, but uh, would you? <laughs> I would do it in a second. Okay. Yeah. Give me a parachute. <laughs> Paul, thank you very much. Pleasure, Ken. Now, each week, The Economist writes for you, but now you can write for us if you're young. We're holding a youth essay competition, and it's for people between 16 and 25 years old. And the question is, what fundamental economic or political change, if any, is needed for an effective response to climate change? The essay should be no longer than a thousand words, and the deadline is July 31st. The winning essay will be published on The Economist website, and the winner will be invited to attend one of the three Open Future Festival events held in Hong Kong, Manchester, or Chicago on October 5th. To learn more, go to economist.com slash openfuture. You can enter, and if you're ineligible because you're too old, find someone who's young who can. And finally, are people more honest than they think they are? I'm walking through the Economist building right now, and I'm walking out the door, and I'm walking down the street in central London, and what do I see out of the corner of my eye? A wallet on the ground. Let's see what's in it, and opening it up, there's a little bit of dosh, and yeah, hello, money, honey. Hmm, bank cards, identification, and 10 quid in cash. Now, what would you do? Would you be a good Samaritan and return it, or would you keep it as a little finder's fee? Well, what about economists? What would they do? I asked a few colleagues at The Economist what they might do if they stumbled across a wallet on the street. I would look inside for details of the person who owned it and then try and call them or contact them to let them know I had it and how I could return it. As a child, I found a £20 note. My mum made me wait for six weeks to see if anyone came looking for it, and then I got to keep it. I think a lot of people would be very tempted to take some of it, and honestly, there's so much grief in replacing all the other things in your wallet that you'd be kind of glad to get it back even if the money was gone. Well, this actually happened to me a couple of months ago in one of London's parks. So I picked up the wallet, which had money in it, had an ID card in it too, and I delivered it to the staff who were looking after the park, who were rather hard to get hold of but as I handed it over and looked in the eyes of the person who received it I had this slightly uneasy feeling that they might steal the money and then put the rest of the wallet in the bin so it wasn't very satisfactory. So that's what the hacks at The Economist would do but what about the rest of the world where there's actually human beings? Professor Alan Cohn of the University of Michigan and his colleagues have been investigating this. Hello, Alan. Hi, Ken. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So first, tell me about the experiment you conducted. What did you do? So we conducted a large-scale field experiment across 40 countries, more than 350 cities, where we turned in apparently lost wallets at public and private institutions and then measured whether the recipient would return the wallet to the original owner. Great. And what were your findings? So we varied the amount of money in the wallet because we wanted to study whether people act more dishonestly when they have a higher financial incentive to do so. Now, much to our surprise we find that people are more likely to return a lost wallet when it contains a higher rather than a lower amount of money. And why was that a surprise? 
Because as economists, uh, we're mainly focused on the economic or financial incentives. And so when you increase the amount of money in the wallet, this incentive increases. So we thought that people would be less likely to return a wallet when it contains a higher amount of money. What were you trying to measure? What was the aspect of human nature that interested you? We wanted to study people's psychological motivation to do the right thing. And so basically what our study suggests is that there are two main psychological forces. So the first one is altruism. It's the idea that we care about others and so we don't want to harm them. So if you don't return a wallet, then what it means is that you harm the owner. And so people don't want to do that. But our results cannot really be explained simply by assuming that we care about others. Because after all, we still care more about ourselves. So basically you need a second force and the second force has to do with our desire to view ourselves as honest people. And so what we show in this paper is that this desire, this concern can be strong and even stronger than the economic incentives. And so what did you learn across different countries. We were really surprised by this finding because we predicted the opposite. And so we started with a pilot study in Finland and then wanted to test whether we find similar effects in other countries or whether it's just something that was specific to Finland. Now, much to our surprise, we find that the effect is robust in most countries that we visited. And so this shows that it's a global phenomenon. But were Finns more honest than Frenchmen who were more honest than Britons? Yeah, so basically you can also study the levels of honesty. This is not really the focus of our paper, but we find large differences in people's willingness to return a lost wallet across countries. So, for example, you have Scandinavian countries and Switzerland who rank highest, and then you have China, Peru, and other countries where people are not very likely to return a lost wallet. Now, Alan, I detect a small accent when you speak English. Where are you from? I'm originally from Switzerland, and so I moved to the U.S. about five years ago. Are you trustworthy? I hope so. How much money are we talking here in the low amount and the high amount? So in the low amount, we're talking about $13.45. And in the big money condition, we use the amount of $94.50. And of course, we adjusted these cash amounts for purchasing power. What, what this means is that we converted this amount not just to the local currency, but we also adjusted them for people's income and purchasing power. Alan, I have to ask, how much money did you lose in conducting this experiment? So we spent about $600,000 for this study because in most countries we didn't collect the wallets. So we actually just measured whether people would contact the owner and would show some willingness to return it. It would have almost doubled the cost if we would have picked it up and there were some also more uh, technical issues to do that. However, what we did is we went to two countries, to Switzerland and Czech Republic, and there we actually picked up the wallets because we wanted to know if people are willing to return it, whether they also return it with the money inside. And what we see is that whenever people contact the owner to return the wallet, they basically leave all the content intact. What? 
you lost over $600,000? Alan, who paid for this research? <laughs> this sounds like a lot of money, but it's actually not. So we were just lucky to have a Swiss nonprofit organization. It's the oldest think tank in Switzerland that provided us with financial support as well as uh, the University of Zurich. While it sounds like a lot of money, if you think about other research, such as medical research or uh, physics, where they have to buy expensive equipment, like, for example, an fMRI that can easily cost $10 million, this study sounds uh, rather trivial in terms of how much it costs. That's incredible. So you must have had to buy lots of old and used wallets. Yeah, we actually didn't buy old wallets. We bought wallets that are plastic card cases. So they actually didn't really look like standard leather wallets. And this was done on purpose because we wanted to make sure that the recipients knew exactly what's in the wallet. So we were worried that some people might not look inside the wallet. And also because we had a condition where there wasn't any money in it, we wanted to mitigate the feeling that someone is returning a lost wallet, but already grabbed the money. And so by using a non-standard wallet, we minimize these faults. Alan, thank you very much. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.